Lord, we pray in your name that you will be with us. Thank you for everything that you've done for us. Thank you for helping in the last meetings that I've had. And Lord, I know that you are, you're going to be here again today. And we pray for your help. Pray for the Holy Spirit. Please talk to us and make this message very plain to us so that we can see the importance of having your character in this battle that we're in. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, start at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 26. This was on the sixth day of creation week. Right before God made the Sabbath. In verse 26, the Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. It's very clear that God's purpose in forming human beings is so that we would reveal his image, which really means his character, his likeness, so that when people look at us, God's plan is that they will see a reflection of him. Now, in order for people to see a reflection of him, we need to be like him. And we need to, especially down here in our fallen state, down near the end, uh, we need to have a correct understanding of his character so that we can then reflect that character to the world. And in the last couple of meetings, we've talked about the controversy that is going on uh, within the Seventh-day Adventist Church dealing with the character of God. And what I see as imbalances, uh, which are actually uh, perversions and deceptions about the character of God. We've talked about how his character is a blend of mercy and justice rooted in love. I've said that over and over again. And by the way, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned, but I've written a book on this which is called The Character of God Controversy. And that book is available from Whitehorse Media. It's also available uh, at the ABCs. And it's a, it's a very powerful study. It was co-authored by me and a, and a doctor in Loma Linda called Dr. Chris. His name is Dr. Chris Lewis. And we work together. We have the same burden, same passion, same concerns about these different things that are happening in our church. People often misinterpret God's character and, and they don't see him as a God of love. They don't see him as a God of mercy. And they see him as just a, a hard being. Uh, and then there are other people that uh, misinterpret his justice, and they don't see him as a God of justice. And really the bottom line of, of some of these uh, currents within the church is that uh, for many people, they cannot see that God's justice is really just. They don't see God's justice as being being good. They see it as being bad. But in my mind, it's the devil that's bad. The devil, the devil is the evil one, and God is the good one. And if God, in his goodness, chooses to let justice come upon the devil, because the devil's bad, is that good or bad? <laughs> what do you think? You know, it's, it's good. Uh, if God chooses to actively get rid of sin, because it's bad, and get rid of evil, that is a good act on his part. And for some reason, these days, it's very difficult for some people to see 
God's justice as being just. They have to make God's justice be something else in order for it to be just in their minds. And I just don't, I don't accept that. I think that God is just and we can look at what the Bible says and whether God uh, allows consequences to run their course as a manifestation of his justice or whether he chooses to actively put down rebellion and to punish sin, whatever he chooses to do, he's good in doing it. He's good in doing it. And as we'll see tomorrow, all of this, these issues about the character of God also affect our understanding of the plan of salvation. Not, we, we not only need to see God's justice and his mercy in his character, but we need to understand that in Gethsemane and on the cross and how that also helps us to understand righteousness by faith because they all go together. The sanctuary service reveals God's mercy and his justice and righteousness by faith. It's all there. And so I'll talk more about this tomorrow. But anyway, here we read in verse 26 that God's plan originally was that we would reveal and reflect his own image, his own character. Really, when you get to the heart of the great controversy, it's about the character of God and what is revealed in humanity. And when Jesus was here, he revealed the character of God in his humanity, and it was a wonderful revelation, a beautiful revelation, and that's the revelation that God wants as much as possible to duplicate inside of our lives. Now, let's go to the book of Daniel, and let's have a Bible study about character, and let's, let's look at it from the perspective of the symbols that are used in the prophecies. In Daniel chapter 2, and I'm just going to walk you through these briefly. And I, I just learned this from my own, my own Bible study. I've been an evangelist for Amazing Facts. I was one for six years, traveled around the country and went to, went to other countries, went to Canada, went to New Zealand. I've been to Pakistan into Russia, the first meeting I ever had with Amazing Facts uh, overseas was with Joe Cruz. I'm sure you've heard of Joe Cruz. Uh, Joe used to be the director of, of Amazing Facts before Doug. And the last crusade that Joe ever had was in Russia. He was 70 years old. And I was just a new, a new Amazing Facts evangelist. And a man named Louis Torres handed me a little note and uh, let me know that that's where he wanted me to go for my training was to work with Joe Cruz. And so I, I went for an evangelistic training. Uh, Dr. Nedley's been to Russia too. I'm pretty sure that he was with me on that trip. And Lowell Hargraves and some others, we all went and had a wonderful time learning from, from Joe. And when he came back, when we all came back, within a short time, he was dead. It was his last series that he ever did. And I learned a lot of what I knew about preaching in an evangelistic context from Joe Cruz. And I just, I learned an awful lot from him. And of course, during our meetings, his meetings and our meetings, we went through Daniel, we went through Revelation, we went through the prophecies, we explained this to the public like evangelists still do today. And one, one day later on after that, as I was re-looking at the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation in the context of character, something really hit me that I want to share with you. 
Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, and we know, this, we know this chapter well, at least hopefully we do, this is talking about the dream of Nebuchadnezzar where he saw this big image. And let me just uh, draw your attention to verse 31. Daniel is standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. He had had the revelation the night before of what the king dreamed. And in verse 31, Daniel now stands before him and says, Thou, O king, you saw and, and behold a great what? A great image. So there's the word image. We saw the word image in Genesis. God made man in his own image. And in Daniel 2, we have an image standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. And this image, it says, it was a great image. It says that twice. Behold, thou, O king, saw and behold a great image. This, <coughs> this great image, whose brightness <coughs> was excellent, stood before you, and its form was terrible. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, let me get some water. My throat's a little bit, a little bit froggy. This is, I think, my sixth talk so far in the last couple days. Hopefully my voice will hold out. They're really working me here, giving me a lot to do. Anyway, all right, so he saw an image. Now, what was this image of? Was it an image of a cat? Was it an image of a horse? What was the image of? It was the image of a man. That's right, a great image standing before Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. And then Daniel goes on and explains about the head of gold, the breast and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, and then the rock came down and hit the image. And I, and I thought about that later, and I thought, all right, here you've got an image of a man. Now, if you look at chapter 7, Daniel 7 is the next major prophecy in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 2, you've got four metals, different parts of the man, of the image, and then in Daniel 7, instead of four metals, what do we have? Yeah, we have beasts. Right. Daniel 7 verse 2 says, Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts. So we have a great image of a man, and now we have four great beasts. They came up from the sea, diverse one from another. And then it describes these different beasts. One is, a, is like a lion in verse uh, 4, in verse 5. Another one's like a bear in verse 6. Another one's like a leopard. Verse 7, we have a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and very strong with great iron teeth that has ten horns. And then in verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, the Bible says, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a what? Man. Of a man. That's right. And a mouth speaking great things. Now, I remember this hitting me one day. I was just thinking about the prophecies, and I thought, all right. In Daniel 2, you've got, an, you've got the nations of the world represented by a man. And then in Daniel 7, You've got the same nations represented by beasts. And then out of the fourth beast comes ten horns. 
and then a little horn, and the little horn has eyes like a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And I thought, this is, this is interesting. You've got a man in Daniel 2, you've got beasts in Daniel 7, and then you've got a horn with eyes like a man. And what's happening is God is bouncing back and forth. He's describing the same nations as a man, and then those same nations as a beast. And then you've got the horn that looks like a man. Now when we go to Revelation 13, in Daniel 7, the little horn has a mouth speaking great things. In Daniel 7, the little horn makes war on the saints. In Daniel 7, the little horn rules for three and a half times. It does various things. And we find in Revelation 13, we find the same exact things. In verse 5, it talks about a mouth speaking great things. In verse 7, it talks about war against the saints. In verse, let's see, I think it's verse 5, it talks about ruling for 42 months, which is the same as three and a half times or three and a half years. Very similar to Daniel chapter 7. And yet in Daniel 7, this is all described as being the activity of the little horn. But in Revelation 13, it's the activity of who? Who's doing this in Revelation 13? Who has a mouth speaking great things? Who makes war on the saints? Who rules for, for a certain amount of time? In Revelation 13.1, it's called a beast. 13.1, I stood upon the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And then it describes what the beast, beast does, which is the same thing as little horn. So let's just follow the progression. In Daniel 2, it's a man. In Daniel 7, it's beasts. And then you've got a little horn with eyes like a man. And then in Revelation 13, that little horn is described as a beast. So God is continuing to bounce back and forth between a man and a beast, a man and a beast. And then at the end of chapter 13, which is the chapter about the beast, he comes full circle. And in chapter 13, verse 18, he says, here is wisdom, let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of what? Of a man. Right, and his number is uh, 600, three score and six, which comes to 666. So the pattern continues. Daniel 2, it's a man. Daniel 7, it's a beast. Then you've got the little horn with eyes like a man. And then in Revelation 13, that horn is described as a beast. And then at the end of Revelation 13, it says... The beast has the number of a man, and the number is 666. So you see, you see the pattern? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Man, beast, man, beast, man, beast, man, beast. Why? One day it hit me, I thought to myself, why? Why is this happening? Why is God doing this? What's he trying to teach us by this pattern? Now we know that the prophecies do teach us about the rise and fall of nations. We know that it talks about the little horn coming up and how this applies to the papal power. And you know, if you've studied the prophetic timeline, you understand these things. But still, I, th I thought, well, OK, I understand that. I understand the history. I understand the prophecy. I understand the rise and fall of nations. But why, in the midst of all of this, is God bouncing back and forth between a man and a beast, a man and a beast, a man and a beast? Can you think of any reason why that might be so? Why does he do this? Well, maybe as you're thinking about that, let's go to Revelation chapter 12. 
And let's take a look at the three beasts that are described in chapter 12 and 13. There's three of them. Revelation 12 describes a great dragon in verse 1. There appeared a great dragon in heaven. Or I'm sorry. There appeared a great wonder in heaven in verse 1. There's a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. <clears throat> and she being with child, uh, it says she cried and tr she was travailing in birth and she was pained to be delivered. And then in verse 3, it says, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Now, we've already had a great image. We've had four great beasts. And now we have a great red dragon. And he has seven heads and ten horns. He's a beast. And he uh, does certain things. He, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth which represented Satan deceiving a third of the angels and casting them down to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born, and that child was Jesus. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. The child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman flees into the wilderness, and the dragon chases her, and does various things, various things to her. And one day I thought about this prophecy, and I thought about looking at it closely and trying to discover uh, if, and this, is, this was the, the thinking that I went through. I thought, all right, you've got the, the man in Daniel 2, the beast in Daniel 7, the little horn like a man in Daniel 7, the beast in Revelation 13, and his number is like a man at the end of 13, and I saw back and forth, man, beast, man, beast, man, beast. And I thought, you know, why is God doing this? And I came to the conclusion that God is describing humanity in the, in, in, in the symbolism of beasts because he's trying to teach us character lessons. That humanity that was created in the image of God to reveal God's character to the world has actually, because of sin, become so degraded that we are really revealing in heaven's eyes characters that are more like beasts instead of God. And that's why it goes back and forth to teach us this lesson. And then when I, once I thought about that, I started, I, my mind started thinking, all right, well, what about the, the three beasts that are in, in Revelation, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet? What about the dragon described in chapter 12? the first beast described in chapter 13, and the second beast described in chapter 13. Do they have characters? Do they have character attributes? And so I went back to these chapters and I thought, all right, well, let's start with the dragon in Revelation 12. We know it's a beast. It has seven heads and ten horns. And I started looking at the character issues. If you, let's just take a look at a couple of these. What is the primary characteristic of the dragon? Well, one of, one of the characteristics in verse 9 is that he's a deceiver. Verse 9 says, The great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He's a subtle deceiver. That's one of the characteristics of the dragon, right? Now, is, uh, is, is the devil himself the only one that's, that, that is sometimes a subtle deceiver? Or 
has that character come into humanity? Subtle deception. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. All right, now here's another, here's another one. Uh, in verse 10, it says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan, the dragon, is also described as an accuser. Now, has that character quality, uh, accusing others, is that a character that is only a character that we see in the devil? Or has that character become woven into some human beings? Yeah, the accuser of the brethren, that's right. That accusation now has worked its way into humanity. Okay, here's another one. Uh, it says in verse 12, Rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil is come down to you, having great what? Having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. What, base, what is wrath? I mean, it's basically, you know, the dragon's wrath is anger, right? When it says the dragon has great wrath, it means that the dragon has great anger because he knows that he has a short time. Is anger a characteristic that we only see in the devil? Or has it come into humanity? Definitely. Yeah, I think you can see that. All right, verse 17 says the dragon was wroth. Any of your Bibles have any other words besides wroth? Okay, enraged. I think some Bibles say furious, he's, which basically means he's angry. He's enraged with the woman. And he goes to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we have twice his, his uh, character is, a, is an angry character. So I just, you know, I thought about that. I've looked at, at uh, this chapter. I don't have PowerPoint slides to show you for this. I've never put, to, put slides together. But I thought about this, and I see in Revelation 12 a dragon, a beast, who is deceptive. He is an accuser of the brethren, and he's angry. Okay, got that? The light's going on? Yeah, oh, yeah, I can see it. Right, the lights are going on. He's a deceiver, he's angry, and he's, uh, he's an accuser. And I thought, wow, those character qualities are qualities that have come into human beings. People today have become deceivers. People today have become accusers. People today have become angry. And so I thought about that and I thought, if, if those character qualities are in me, if I become deceptive and an accuser and angry, and if I were to look in the, in, the, in the mirror, if I were to look in the biblical mirror, what I would see looking back at me in the biblical mirror is the face of a dragon. If you're angry or an accuser or a deceiver, then you're like a dragon. You're dragon-like. The dragon has worked his character into you. So instead of being like the image of God, you're not revealing the image of God, you're revealing the image of the dragon. Make sense? It does make sense. 
And, and is, is, is this the reason why God has, why God bounces the prophecies back and forth between a man and a beast and a man and a beast and a man? Is he trying to show us that human character qualities from his perspective have become like, like dragons, have become like the beast? I mean, if you think about it, uh, in Daniel 2, the image of the man really is, is designed to show the image of nations. And nations are made up of people. And then in Daniel 7, when those same nations are described as beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dragon-like beast, those beasts represent nations that are made up of people. And so God is trying to tell us that the people are becoming lion-like, bear-like, leopard-like, dragon-like. They're becoming beast-like in his sight. Because now, remember, from, from God's perspective, when he made man, he made him to reflect his own image. When God made man, he, wanted, he wants humanity to reveal his love, his mercy, his truth, his justice, his kindness, his goodness. These are the character qualities God wants to see in you. And when he sees, and in me, and when he sees other character qualities, from his perspective, those character qualities are pretty evil. They're very evil. Now, we don't generally realize how evil they are. You know, we think, oh, well, you know, I'm just mad. <laughs> and we don't, we don't really think too much about it. Or if we don't really realize it, but when, when we lie, you know, we're deceiving people. Or when we accuse people of different things, we just, they're just part of our characters. But God wants to open our eyes. He wants us to look in the mirror. And his law is like a mirror. And the Bible is like a mirror. When we look in the, at the Bible, we see things about ourselves that we don't normally see. And it just hit me one day that if I'm angry and if I'm deceptive and if I'm an accuser, I can look in the mirror in Revelation chapter 12 and I can see a great dragon and then I can look in the mirror and I can see a reflection of myself. Yeah, wow. In God's sight, I'm like a dragon. Now let's go to the beast. Let's go to Revelation 13. The beast's character is a little bit different than the dragon. They have similarities, but there are some distinct characteristics of the dragon and the first beast and the second beast. They're distinct. So let's look at the first beast in chapter 13, which is the same as the little horn. All right, verse 1 says, I stood upon the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. And what does the sea represent in the Bible? The multitudes of people, right? So the beast is rising up out of the people, right? He's rising up out of the people. He has seven heads, ten horns. Upon his horns, ten crowns. And upon his heads, the names of blasphemy. He's a blasphemous beast. Do people blaspheme God today? Yeah, they do, don't they? And from God's perspective, when people blaspheme him, from his perspective, who are they acting like? They're acting like Satan. They're acting like the beast. And when this, this beast actually represents, it has an application to a certain power, to the papal power. I believe that. I'm a Protestant, historicist, Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, this beast applies to the papal power. But the papal power is made up of people, isn't it? 
made up of human beings. And how really different, how much different are the human beings that make up the papal power from you and me? I mean, is, is the Pope essentially different from you and me? How about the average Catholic? How about the average priest? They're people, just like us. All right, now let's go back to, now verse five to me is the key characteristic of this power. Verse five says, there was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He has a big mouth. That's a primary characteristic of the beast. Now, what word do we use to, uh, to describe someone that has a big mouth? It starts with a P. What, what word do we use? It's got five letters. Starts with a P. Uh, proud. Yeah, proud. That's right, pride. And, and when you really look at the beast, its, it's, pr it's dominant characteristic is pride. The dominant characteristic of the dragon is anger. He's angry. He has great wrath. He's angry with the woman. He makes war on the remnant. The dragon is mad. But the beast is proud. That's his dominant characteristic. And when you go back to the little horn in Daniel 7, it says this little horn comes up out of the head of the beast, and he has eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. That's the dominant characteristic of the little horn and of the beast. So you've got a little horn, we've got a man, and then Revelation 13, it's a beast. So I thought about that and I thought, is the beast the only one who's proud? Or do we find that characteristic in other people in the Bible? You know what, we find that same characteristic in Laodicea. Same characteristic, saying I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, and I'm in need of nothing. That's pride. We find that same characteristic in the woman of Babylon, where she says, I sit as a queen, and I, see, I will see no sorrow. It's, it's, it's pride. That's what it is. And it's not just in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not just in the Pope. It's not just in Babylon. It's in Laodicea as well. It's the same spirit. And so when we're proud, if we have a, is it possible for you or for, for, uh, for me to have a mouth speaking great things? Can we boast about, you know, I mean, we can even do it so subtly and boast about how many people we baptized. And we could be proud. We can do it just like the beast. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't baptize a lot of people. Praise God when we baptize a lot of people, when we have meetings and baptize a lot of people. But if we become proud of that in the wrong way and boast, you know, I baptized 100. How many did you baptize? We can be proud just like the beast. We can, we can preach in our meetings about the little horn and about the Roman Catholic Church and about how, how it changed the Sabbath into Sunday. And then we can, you know, call people out of Babylon and if we baptize 100 people, then we can have a mouth speaking great things right after the baptism, and we can boast how many people we baptized as compared to somebody else. And we can have the exact same spirit as the little horn. Is, is, is this heresy or is this true? 
It's true. And so if we're proud, we can look in the mirror. We can open our Bibles and look in the mirror, and we can, we can read Daniel 7 and see the little horn with a big mouth, or we can see the beast with a big mouth, and we can look in the mirror, and who do we see? We can see a reflection of ourselves. That's right, because that's the character of the beast. All right, now let's go to the second beast. In Revelation 13, verse 11, the Revelation 13, 11 beast, which in its historical application applies to the United States of America. Like I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Protestant historicist. And what I'm sharing with you does not in any way negate the historical application of these prophecies. They do apply to Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. They apply to the ten horns. They apply to the little horn, which is the papal power. They apply to the United States of America. I believe all of that. But all of these nations and the papacy and America are made up of people. And those people are not a whole lot different from you and me. And if you look at, uh, especially in America, I mean, we're, we're Americans. <laughs> we're, we're in the belly of the beast, the second beast. Now look at Revelation 13, 11. It says, John says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. But then what did he do? It says he spoke like a dragon. See that? Now, there is, a, there is a, a character quality that is revealed in this verse. The dragon's dominant character is anger. The beast's dominant character is pride. But what about the second beast, which, which is also called the false prophet? Th think about this. What, what, what would you call someone who looks like a lamb a, the, the lamb in the Bible represents who? Represents Jesus, right? So this beast looks lamb-like, which means, you know, he has uh, certain char characteristics like a lamb. He professes to be like a lamb, claims to be Christian, or at least to be based on Christian principles. And then it says, yet he speaks like a dragon. What, what, do you, what word do we use? to describe that kind of a character who looks one, like one thing, but really speaks and acts like something else. That's it. You got it. Hypocrite. It's a hypocrite. The, uh, the second beast is a hypocrite. <laughs> he, he, he claims one thing. He has a profession which is then denied by his, his words. And the words actually are dragon-like. He speaks like a dragon. Now, when this happens in the final days, when the United States of America uh, denies its Protestant principles and speaks like a dragon and uses force and enforces the mark of the beast, this is going to be happening in America. And America is made up of Americans. And it's going to be happening among people. Isn't that right? Hypocrisy in people. Now, is, uh, is that characteristic hypocrisy, hypocrisy something that we are immune to? Is it something that only happens in the beast? 
or could it be happening in us? Is it possible that we could be hypocrites too? That we could profess uh, our faith, a pure faith, pure Protestant principles, you know, the pure Seventh-day Adventist faith, and yet deny our profession by our actions? Can, can we do that? Can I, Steve Wahlberg, become a hypocrite? Can you become a hypocrite? Sure, definitely. And if we are hypocrites, and if we look in the mirror of Revelation 13, verse 11, what do we see? We see the beast. That's right. We see the beast being reflected in us. Anger, pride, and hypocrisy. These are the characteristics of the beasts. And these are character qualities that are in humans. And I believe that's why God has bounced back and forth between the beast and the man, the beast and the man, the beast and the man. I mean, he could have picked another, another uh, symbol for the image in Daniel 2. When the little horn popped out of the fourth beast in Daniel 7, he could have picked a different, a different symbol instead of eyes like a man. In Daniel 7, he could have picked a, a horse instead of, you know, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dragon-like beast. He could have picked all kinds of symbols, but he didn't. He picked beasts, and he picked uh, man. And I think he did it for a reason, because he wants to teach us something. He wants to teach us how, how beastly in his sight is anger and deceptiveness and accusing others and pride and hypocrisy. These are character qualities of beasts in his sight. And he does not want those character qualities in us. Now go to chapter 14. Thank God that the imagery of Revelation doesn't just include beasts. There are, there are other symbols there. In Revelation 14, verse 1, it says, I looked, and lo, and what kind of an animal did John see? He saw a lamb. He saw a lamb. Now, what, uh, and obviously, who did the lamb represent? Represented Jesus. And when you think of a lamb, what kind of qualities do you think of? Okay, meekness, right? Gentleness. Right, humility, those are character qualities of, of the Lamb. And when you look at the character of Jesus, I mean, that's what we see, right? We don't see anger, at least not, at least not the same kind of anger as the dragon. The dragon's anger is not a righteous indignation. Now, there are times in the New Testament where Jesus did, Jesus did manifest anger. He was angry uh, in the temple, and it says that he... Um, there's another verse somewhere where it says that he was, he was angry and he was grieved for the hardness of their hearts. When Jesus drove out the money changers, he was angry, but it wasn't the dragon's anger. It was a righteous anger against sin that had come into God's temple. It was a different kind of anger. But the, uh, the, the, the character qualities that we see in Jesus, truth, honesty, integrity, purity, meekness, humility gentleness, 
respect, respect for Joseph and Mary, for his parents, all of those character qualities that we see in Christ are really a reflection of the image of God. And Jesus wants those character qualities to, to be woven inside of us. If you look at this verse again in verse 1, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him, it says, 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. Jesus said, I and my father are one. We're of the same character. And when it says that they have the father's name written in their foreheads, basically what it means is that the character of the father, which is the same character as the son, because they're one, that that character is, has now been written or woven into the characters of his people. It's a character issue. This verse is describing people who have the character qualities of the lamb instead of the character qualities of the beasts. They don't have mouths speaking great things. They're not hypocrites. They're not angry. They're not proud. They're not deceptive. They're like Jesus. And Jesus does not reveal any characteristics of the beast, does he? Now, here, here's another one. I thought, okay, I've been going, going through this in my mind, and I'm sharing this with you, and I hope it's enlightening to you. Um, I, I, then I looked at the, the woman in Revelation 17, and I thought, I wonder if this woman has, a, has some character qualities. The woman of Babylon. Let's see if we can find one or two. Revelation 17, verse 1 says, There came one of the seven angels who had the seven vials. He talked with me, and he said to me, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. So here you've got this woman. Verse 3 says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman. Do you see uh, any character issues there? What does this woman do? First of all, what kind of woman is she? She's a harlot. That's right. Now, when you think of harlotry, you know, what, what do you think of? Okay, a prostitute. Right which really has to do with sexual sin, right? She's a sexually immoral woman, isn't she? She's a whore. She's a prostitute. She's not chaste. She doesn't wait until she gets married. <laughs> you know, she doesn't, have, uh, she doesn't decide to have no sex before marriage. She doesn't even get married. <laughs> she just, she commits fornication. She sleeps around. She sleeps around with the kings of the earth. She commits fornication with them. She's a sexually immoral woman who is really uh, a harlot. Now, is she the only harlot in this world? Is she the only prostitute? Is she the only person that commits fornication? Is she the only woman that is sexually immoral? Or are there other women that are sexually immoral in this world? How about men? Are there men that are sexually immoral? Yes. And so sexual immorality is the dominant characteristic of this woman. And I thought, wow, you know, if I'm, I'm thinking right now, if I am sexually impure, if I am uh, 
you know, immoral, if I commit fornication, if I'm not faithful to my wife, if I'm a, and if I'm even a, attracted you know, to those kind of things, I can look in the mirror, in the mirror of Revelation 17, and what do I see? I can see the whore of Babylon. I can see the prostitute. Now here's another interesting characteristic. Notice the way she's dressed. In verse 4 it says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and she's decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. How does she, how does she dress? Okay, she's immodest in her dress, and she's loaded with the world's jewels. What was that? Yeah, vanity. Vanity, pride, and the world's jewels. And sometimes people wonder whether the standard that we have as Seventh-day Adventists concerning dress and jewelry, is this still valid today? Should we still follow those standards? I think we should, definitely. That's right. If you look at the woman in Revelation, she's all decked out with all the world's jewels. And she's not the only one. She's not the only one. She's the mystery woman of Babylon. And those are her characteristics. She's immodest, she's sexually immoral, and she's a worldly dressing woman. And God has given us this prophecy not just to point to Babylon out there, but to teach us character lessons of the kind of characters that we are supposed, supposed to have. Uh, as we've been talking about the character of God controversy in our church, and it's been going on. I mean, the character of God controversy started in heaven when Satan, when Lucifer first challenged the character of God. That's what he did. He challenged God's character. He said that God was, un, uh, that he was selfish, that he was not good, that he was, essentially, he was, um, he was a tyrannical, domineering God. And he deceived the angels with this view of God's character. And Lucifer didn't realize it, but he was acting like a beast in his own character because he was really the one that was exhibiting those character qualities. He was the selfish one. He was the proud one. He was becoming the, the tyrant. It was, in, it was his own character that he was superimposing upon God. And it started in heaven, and then the battle came down here on the earth, and God made man into his own image to reflect his character, to represent him in this great controversy. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they opened their hearts up to Satan and his angels, and they came in and began to mold humanity into their own characters. And when you look at the prophecies, God has given us these beasts and this harlot and these uh, graphic descriptions to try to teach us these character issues. And we know these are character issues because Revelation 14.1 describes the people that, don't, that they're not defiled with Babylon, with the women of Babylon, and they've got the name of God written in their foreheads. They've got those, the character qualities of Jesus. And ultimately, you know, the character of God controversy that we're in is, is, is working itself out in humanity. Whose character do we? are we reflecting in the character of God controversy? Are we reflecting the character of Jesus? Or are we reflecting the character of the angry dragon, the proud beast, the hypocritical beast, and the sexually immoral 
harlot. Got it? Now, here's a quotation. Let me see if I can get this up on the screen. There's one quote I want to show you here that I read as I was pondering this. There it is. That has just, it's just nailed it. It's put the nail in the, well, I don't want to use the word coffin, but it's put the nail down in my mind that what I've just shared with you is just the truth. It doesn't change anything as far as our prophetic interpretation. All it does is it adds a character dimension to the battle. Now look at this. This, is, uh, this statement says it's from the Review and Herald, April 14, 1896. The simplest way to find it is to go to volume 7A of the Bible commentary set, which is the volume that is exclusively the uh, comments of Ellen White. And in volume 7A, the chapter, Revelation chapter 12, has this quote. So this is the simplest way to find it. Volume 7A, Revelation chapter 12. And look at what she says. Look at this. She says, through yielding to satanic influences, men will be transformed into fiends. And those who were created in the image of God and who were formed to honor and glorify their creator will become the habitation of dragons. And Satan will see in an apostate race his masterpiece of evil. It just gives me, I, mean, I literally have shivers. I'm not just saying this. I can feel it going right in the back of my, the back of my hair, going right down my back right now as I just am reading this. It's giving me shivers. Satan will see in an apostate race his masterpiece of evil. And what is that masterpiece of evil? It says there it is men, and I think this applies to women as well, men who reflect his own image. See that? Wow, that is absolutely amazing. The habitation of dragons. I didn't mention this, but Revelation 13 also talks about the second beast setting up an image of the beast. And then he enforces the mark of the beast. Those who get the mark of the beast are those who have first yielded to the image of the beast. Then they get the mark of the beast. And I think there's a real powerful spiritual lesson in that for us, that if our characters are reflecting the image of the beast, then we are setting ourselves up for getting the mark of the beast. It's a, it's a character issue, primarily. That is what's, that's what's happening in the character of God controversy. And if we, if we look at God's justice and if we accuse God of being evil because he's just, you know, if we have a hard time believing and accepting the simple fact that God is just and that there are times when he does punish sin, he does, and that he's just in doing it. And if we, if we can't accept that and if we uh, are essentially accusing God of being evil unjust 
because he is just, then we are really um, reflecting the character of the devil. That's what we're doing. We're reflecting the angry character of Satan in accusing God of being an unjust being. And that's a character that we don't want to have in our lives. We want, the, we want to have the character of Jesus Christ, the character of the Lamb. And by the way, one other thought before we wind this up. Um, another characteristic of a lamb, it's not just meekness and gentleness and kindness, but the word lamb in the Bible is a specific reference, not just to Jesus Christ sort of generically, but it also applies to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Lambs in the Bible were sacrificed, were they not? The first lamb was sacrificed. Abel offered a lamb and it was sacrificed. And so when we think of Jesus' character as the lamb and having the Father's name written in our foreheads, uh, that character also needs to include sacrifice. And I think one of the things that we need to be willing to sacrifice is sin. We need to sacrifice and give up our anger, give up our pride, give up our accusing, give up our hypocrisy, give up our, sexually, our sexual immorality. You know, this, these are all things that we need to sacrifice and give up for Jesus if we're going to have his character written in our foreheads. It's powerful, isn't it? This is very powerful information. And like I said, I've never heard anybody say any of these things exactly like that. And I just learned this on my own, and I believe Jesus taught me these things. And when I read this quote in volume 7a, Satan will see in an apostate race his masterpiece of evil, men who reflect his own image. I knew for sure that the Lord was leading my mind to study these beasts and this harlot woman from a character perspective not just so that we'll you know, think of the papacy out there or we'll think of Babylon out there and we'll think of the beasts out there, but so that we will take a look inside our own hearts and realize that the same character qualities that are out there can easily become part of the remnant. They can become part of Seventh-day Adventists. They can become part of your heart and my heart and these are things we need to sacrifice and give up in order to be like Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a powerful, simple Bible study, but how convicting it is. Lord, we want to take this opportunity right now to... Humble our hearts and to ask you to forgive us. Please forgive us for the pride, the mouth speaking great things. Please forgive us for the anger and the accusing spirit, whether it's accusing you of being unjust when you are just or accusing others falsely. And forgive us for the hypocrisy of professing to be one thing, but living in a different way. And forgive us for the sexual immorality 
that is all around this world. This is one of the more difficult things for us to overcome, to be pure and to be clean, to be chaste and to be um, holy in your sight and not to let the world's fornication and the world's harlotry and prostitution uh, and immorality get into us. Please help us to look to Jesus, to make sacrifices, to give these things up so that we can be like you. Lord, restore in us your own image so that image will be reflected to others instead of the image of the beast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.